Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of LPRC's Crime Science, the podcast. Today, uh, our latest in our weekly update series, um, and we now, as we learned before, well over 50 um, of these in the special series, uh, joined by my colleagues Tom Meehan, Tony D'Onofrio, and by our LPRC uh, producer in this case, um, Diego Rodriguez. And I want to welcome everybody. Um, I'll start off with a, just a little bit of an update. Um, we, we've all been hearing over the last 50 episodes about uh, COVID-19 in particular, um, uh, you know, prevention and therapies and vaccines and masking and so forth. And um, so, you know, research continues on all fronts, of course. I mean, it's just, a, uh, I think, an unprecedented number of research studies have been and continue to be uh, conducted around the world. So just, the again, the accumulated learning uh, by the scientific community, the medical community around viruses and viral transmission and um, how to treat, how to prevent, um, and, and dispelling some old wives' tales. Even the, the six-foot rule came from it, it seemed somewhat dubious beginnings or, or something that wasn't particularly on point. It's been refined and has demonstrated to provide some good separation. And the intent is to uh, keep the viral particles from uh, entering another person, or at least not as many as we've talked about viral particles. So, um, but is it is it too much or not enough space and things like that are still under uh, heavy scrutiny in, in uh, research right now? Um, we know that many schools have lessened that distance based on CDC guidance. Uh, again, these remain open questions and there's not gonna be definitive answers most likely. We heard a lot last year about sunlight and, and the detrimental effect that it has on viruses, in, in particular the SARS-CoV-2 virus causing the, the COVID-19 disease. Uh, emerging research now shows that sunlight is very powerful and recommended that people not get overexposed to the sun, like most people in the state of Florida that might have pre-skin cancer or skin cancer, but rather um, enough to deactivate the virus. And in fact, it uh, looks like sunlight is even is eight times uh, more destructive to the virus than had early or last year in 2020 been predicted or initially thought. So it does seem to be um, as the sun reemerges across the globe, uh, a good sign um, in the Northern hemisphere anyway, uh, for further degrading the virus and reducing its transmission. But we did start to learn late 2020 that uh, really airborne aerialized transmission was the main key. But again, uh, in sunlight, this is gonna reduce that transmission to a certain extent. So uh, according to the new science, um, <clears throat> the variants continue to dominate the news since uh, we've talked about before certain um, variants are including different types of uh, uh, disorder on each of the spike proteins and other parts of the virus. And, um, and again, the vaccines are designed to affect and replicate that spike protein that, that's sort of the key to get into the cell, you know, to unlock the lock. Um, 
But uh, fortunately, it looks like the, vac- the currently developed vaccines are still have efficacy against the variants. But the concern, again, is, is a race to get shots in arms um, as to preclude much as much rapid uh, variation as we're seeing right now um, across the globe. And, and it is the good news there. Uh, closing in on 700 million humans across the world have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Um, and, and that's just an incredible number um, in the United States, um, well over 100, 100 plus million people, Americans have now received at least one dose. Well over 60 plus million are fully vaccinated in the United States uh, with the two doses or the one if it's the J&J. Um, we're still awaiting Novavax's data, which is probably still um, one to two months away um, as far as their uh, application for emergency use authorization. But in the meantime, Pfizer and Moderna have continued to ramp up production and distribution under Operation Warp Speed. Uh, Johnson Johnson the same, even though we understand there was a mishap in a manufacturer that was that was making both uh, no, uh, the J&J uh, Janssen vaccine as well as the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine and mixed up the two causing 13 to 15 million doses to have to be discarded, which is pretty tragic considering especially that those are one dose vaccine options, even though we've heard earlier that J&J is working on the two and even possibly more dose protocols just in case or to learn if there is some um, increase in efficacy by by adding another second one uh, dose. Um, Pfizer and Moderna continue to issue pretty good news. Pfizer, especially in the area of going down to much younger children, to um, pregnant and breastfeeding mothers, um, and showing in these randomized controlled trials the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. And uh, in those special use cases, many, many more states, of course, across the United States, uh, going down to 18 or even 16 now making it fully available. I know here in the state of Florida, beginning yesterday on Monday, the 5th of April, 2021, <clears throat> they started ministering to 16-year-olds and above uh, where the vaccine was there because uh, you know close to 80 plus, per- over 80% of the most vulnerable had been vaccinated. Uh, the governor in that state uh, uh, made that a priority. Um, and across the nation, you know, it's good news that well over 70% uh, in that category have been vaccinated um, and just a massive amount of vaccination that took place in uh, elder care centers, uh, pretty significant in that case as well. Um, the, you know, but there continue to be Gen 1, Gen 2, and possibly Gen 3 um, anti-COVID-19 vaccines underway in production and testing uh, but we know that uh, in preclinical, there are dozens in, in phase one uh, clinical trials, 50 um, vaccines being trialed in human clinical trials. Uh, in phase two human clinical trials, 35 additional vaccine candidates being trialed. Um, and presumably, they all obviously made it well out of phase one. Uh, but there are now still 23 in phase three trials. Um, that have made it past the first two hurdles after making it out of preclinical testing. Um, and again, there are five with emergency use authorization, including J&J, Moderna, and Pfizer, um, as well as now eight globally fully approved vaccines. So, um, you know, the vaccines are here. Again, we're, you know, we're, we're closing on 
uh, three quarters of a billion humans across the globe that will been that will be vaccinated probably in the next six to nine weeks. Um, here at the University of Florida, I walked over by the swamp, the UF stadium, football stadium, and saw the students carefully spaced out forever and ever. But they vaccinated 5,000 University of Florida students yesterday, um, and they estimate at the 5,000 pace that they were able to sustain that they'll vaccinate 20,000. Uh, UF students this week alone. Um, so with the now with the vaccines more broadly available and approval and authorization to go down much lower, um, that's there uh, making that available. So this is what we need. There's still advice and recommendations anyway to continue to mask up even if you're uh, two weeks past um, your Pfizer, Moderna, or J&J vaccination. Um, if you're fully vaccinated, you're not considered that normally until two weeks after that second or that final dose, let's put it that way. But even in that case, uh, in abundance of caution and very close confinement with others that are not vaccinated or that you're not re residing with and so on, um, they're recommending that people wear masks too, uh, because even the best vaccine is, only, is 95%, which is amazing. Anything above 50% is pretty fantastic. Um, and hundred percent for serious, but it doesn't preclude getting some sort of moderate uh, or low grade illness because 95% means 5% or more uh, are still vulnerable, just depending on the luck, the dosing and so on that we've talked about over the last podcast episodes. Um, switching gears over here, um, uh, the LPRC team working on uh, uh, an overall at a glance um, calendar of events. Um, we've determined, I mentioned before, that there are really 86 touch points for LPRC members throughout the, the 12 months of a year, um, which is pretty exciting. We've got seven working groups, which means 10 touch points with each of the working groups throughout the year. So LPRC members get their team, get a team member, one or more, into each of the working groups so that they can work with their counterparts, work with solution partners, engineers, and scientists throughout the year on supply chain protection, retail uh, fraud prevention, violent crime prevention, uh, shoplifting and other theft prevention through the product protection working group. We've got an organized retail crime group with top investigators in there working together with law enforcement, um, the supply chain protection working group, the data analytics working group, um, and the innovation working group, all meeting uh, 10 times throughout the year, uh, 70 touch points there. A minimum of 10 LPRC webinars, which we've done for years now, uh, roughly one a month uh, for at least 10 months, even though this year with the LPRC Innovates AI Solve or Artificial Intelligence Solve, um, you'll see additional probably around six um, uh, webinar events as well. But uh, regardless, with 10, there's another 10. And then we've got uh, six LPRC events, right? So we've got uh, kickoff, Ignite, and then we have our um, product protection uh, summit. We've got a supply chain protection summit, violent crime summit, uh, and then, of course, LPRC impact. So um, these 86 touch points will be an at-a-glance calendar for everybody. <clears throat> We've been working away, too, on uh, meeting on using FusionNet and behind the scenes with Cobwebs, Cognite, and other Intel supporters. Um, uh, regarding the Chauvin child trial in uh, Minneapolis. Um, Tom may or may not touch on that a little bit, depending on his timing. Um, but we're playing, paying very, very close attention, obviously with the active shooter, active assailant uh, mass sh 
the salient event in the King Supers in Boulder. Uh, uh, hopefully looks like an aborted one that took place in a public supermarket in Atlanta. Um, and then some other mass shootings that have occurred. Um, a, a very nice tight look, if you will, where we're conferring with all kinds of experts and in fact, conducting a couple of um, surveys right now with the retailers around this. Um, but we're looking at some of the points, you know, we look at crime scripting, but, you know, what are some background issues that might be, that might set somebody off or um, what are some of the personal uh, mental and cognitive characteristics, their behaviors and so on that might in indicate or signal to others that there's a concern, but we're looking at what might activate that <clears throat> something, uh, a response that an individual might have um, and where they might go to carry out that, that's their response. So, you know, there are a range of triggers, there are a range of responses. Somebody might take their own life or they might um, just seek counseling. They might just get over it. Uh, there are a whole horizon or they might take action to harm others, like in the case of an active assailant. So we're looking at what kind of leakage, what kind of signaling could go on in social media, in uh, physical appearance, hygiene, uh, workplace activities, behavior, productivity. Um, interpersonal relations, do we see what signals might be meaningful to know and understand? On the other side, you know, so that's the before bang. Um, we're also looking at at bang or just right before bang, what guardianship uh, signals might prevent somebody from actually launching um, a harmful act like a, act being an active killer. So <clears throat> what guardianship levels, if there's nothing there, if there's some kind of technology, again, sort of the C get fear or respond. Um, we're looking at if it's a human intervention, um, a law enforcement officer or a security officer um, or something like that, authoritarian figure, if they're armed or not, what they're using. The, the issue is that in any given event, it just seems to be unknown and, and even unknowable if one thing or a combination of things would stop somebody uh, not from being triggered from actually um, launching or initiating an attack. And um, so we have, uh, we're trying to find if there's any evidence that it has, um, or find out if we can find evidence that it might. Uh, we do have, have evidence that it ha does not um, always, um, or we don't know when that might be, but we know in the, uh, the terrorist shooting in Orlando, the Pulse nightclub shooting, we know in the Parkland school shooting, um, we know in many, many other shootings we've looked at um, the active or mass assailant events where there were uniform armed police officers that were there. They were known to be there by the uh, assailant. Um, they were either ignored or they were um, bypassed or they even were initially attacked. Um, and so there's evidence that even the most heavily armed situation <clears throat> may not preclude that. And the same thing on some of these military post uh, active killer events and so on like Fort Hood. So Stay tuned, but uh, there. whenever, again, we've talked about this, when you're a victim of a crime, when we're a victim of a crime, our people, our places, um, we're on the defense. And there are generally no good options or certainly no great ones. Um, it's just a matter of which option or options might might help um, in this case. And again, we're seeing people that, have, that are a month out from two vaccines that are double masks, that are keeping distance, and they get... Um, Sorry, you know, the COVID-19 disease, we know that people that have never smoked get, can get uh, lung cancer. So um, 
you know, there's a lot of mystery in life. And um, as scientists, we all working together with you all trying to make sense of the world. But um, so stay tuned, more and more research to come. Um, so let me do this. Let me go over with no further ado to Tony D'Onofrio. Tony, if you can enlighten us, what's going on around the world? Um, what can we look forward to? How can we get involved? Thank you very much, Reed, and great update. And uh, just to mention, this week, we're also going to make some progress on uh, LPRC Europe. More work is being done in terms of follow-up. Uh, the retailers in Europe will receive some of the, the follow-up material, including a survey to move the next steps. And looking forward to getting the U.S. teams all engaged more with the European team in terms of this expansion. But let me switch to some good data that's coming out from multiple sources. I'll start with some good news from the Consumer Confidence Index as it was published in Chain Store Age. The Conference Board Consumer Index in March rose to its highest reading in over a year after a modest increase in February. The index now stands at 109.7 from 90.4 in February. The percentage of consumers claiming business conditions are good increased from 16% to 18%, while the proportion claiming business conditions are bad fell from 39% to 30%. The percentage of consumers expecting business condition will improve over the next six months rose from 30% to 40%, and the percentage expecting business condition to worsen declined from 17 to 11%. So in general, we are feeling very optimistic as consumers that things are going to get much better as the year progresses. So that's good news. On a lighter note, because I do like to bring some lighter uh, good news to this podcast, uh, this week we saw from the World Happiness Organization the top 10 countries are the happiest in the world. And this year was an unusual survey based on COVID, but uh, the top 10 countries that are happiest in the world in 2021 are Finland, Iceland, Denmark, Switzerland, Netherlands, Sweden, Germany, Norway, New Zealand, and Austria. So Scandinavian is, is all over the top 10, which is interesting, and that continues to be the case. So they must be doing something right. The UK ranked 17th and USA ranked 19th. As one would expect with lockdowns and physical distancing, the pandemic did have a significant impact on workforce well-being, falling unemployed um, uh, during the pandemic is associated with a 12% drop in life satisfaction. The report also points out towards a hybrid future of work that strikes a balance between office life and working from home to maintain connections while ensuring flexibility for workers, birth of which turn out to be key drivers for work uh, place well-being. So things are changing in terms of how we work, uh, impacted by the pandemic, but there are certainly some lessons we can learn uh, from the rest of the world. And finally, I'm going to end uh, one of my favorite annual reports that comes out every year from RIS News, where they analyze what's happening with retail technology inside stores. They've been doing this for a while. This is their 31st annual retail technology study which this year they titled Building the Future-Proof Retail Enterprise. Uh, when they were asked, when the retailers that were polled were asked to describe the current state of retail, the words that they used the most are changing, transforming, influx, 
and unpredictable. The top five challenges for the next three years that retailers are seeing are application integration, retiring legacy systems, change management, Amazon, Walmart, and Alibaba, and consolidating channel silos. The top five technology-driven strategies for the next 18 months are expanding unified commerce initiatives or omni-channel initiatives, improving network and IT system security, advancing analytics and capabilities, developing personalized marketing capabilities, and advancing mobile commerce for consumers. Retailers report that 31.6% of overall sales now come from digital channels compared to 23% last year. This massive jump uh, is expected to continue, but not at the same pace. And it basically says well, that retailers are going to continue to invest and improve digital experience, which I believe is critical in terms of the future of retail. In terms of those digital investments, the top five digital focus areas for the next uh, two years are customer relationship management and personalization, email, mobile, text marketing messages to consumers, product and catalog management, product recommendations, and distributed content management and a repository for that information. Uh, the good news about for this audience is the store is still gonna be at the epicenter of retail going forward, so store remain critical. The top three investments going into stores today are mobile devices for associates and managers, in-store pickup and return of web goods, and real-time monitoring and KPI. The top three in-store investments in the next 12 months are clienteling and guided selling, location-based sensing for marketing and communication, and shopper tracking capability. Curbside pickup is getting a lot of attention at store level. 33% have it today, 27% are currently implementing it, and 10% will implement it in the next two years. And finally, on the data front from this report, lots of focus is going into store analytics, with the top five focus areas in analytics being multi-channel customer behavioral segmentation, campaign analysis and forecasting, inventory optimization, which I think is the most critical, multi-channel frequent shopper and loyalty shopping, and market basket analysis. It's a favorite report. In, pre in fact, I'll, I'll use it as one of my base for one of my next blogs. But let me um, summarize this week in terms of the key lessons learned from all this. Uh, the good news is that increased consumer confidence is another indicator that retail is coming back strong. Lots of lessons that can be learned from those happy countries as we emerge into the new normal. Technology is leading retail back and retailers are intensifying focus on understanding the needs of the green shopper. For this audience especially, it's important that they not forget the red shoppers because all these new technologies will open new opportunities for shrink and theft and other challenges in retail. And, and to all that, I would encourage everyone to engage with LPRC to continuously improve the processes for both the green and the red shopper. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Tony. Thank you, Reed. And uh, Tony, you set, you set the stage perfectly for me and 
Uh, what we're going to talk about is risk, right? We always talk about it. And I think I want to really highlight today that while a lot of the things that I speak about on the podcast uh, inherently feel like cybersecurity, they're really about digital risk. And when you just listen to what Tony talked about, we're increasing the threat landscape significantly within the four walls of retail and also beyond the unified um, increase the digital digital protection risk includes some some of the traditional physical security methods. It, it isn't your grandmother's cybersecurity anymore. This is a completely different landscape. And as we digitize and as we continue to use data to, to make decisions both within asset protection and out, the threat landscape increases dramatically. Um, so a lot more to come. And that leads me to kind of a couple of key stories around risk. Um, and uh, I'll start with the, the ones that are more cybersecurity related, but there was a, a Microsoft Exchange server vulnerability that um, was discovered a few weeks back. Uh, and it's highly recommended to patch. Uh, basically what it allows is it allows uh, malicious code to be executed through a vulnerability. Uh, and to date, it feels like uh, based on the numbers that there is a very small percentage of US based um, Microsoft Exchange servers still vulnerable. A lot of folks are not using our traditional Exchange server and are using cloud-based, but if you are using a Microsoft Exchange server, want to make sure that you have it patched and updated. Um, there's actually numbers that were available last week. Uh, while this is relatively insignificant in the scheme of things, there was about 127,000 servers vulnerable. Looks like if the numbers are accurate, that 90,000 were patched over the week of the last week. This is primarily going to be a small and mid-sized business challenge, but it really speaks to the importance of patching and updating. And I, I think every time I get a chance to talk about reminding, this is uh, this affects all of us from big business to small to just end users and consumers of when that app up and when that update becomes available for your phone for your computer, the importance of really going ahead and updating as soon as possible. The easiest threat vector for attackers to attack is known vulnerabilities. They can do it by them. They can set up scripting and really do it on its own. Uh, doesn't require a ton of sophistication and they're just basically looking for that open window or open door. So the importance of patching, uh, I, I can't stress enough. And that leads me to my next conversation about the, there was an iOS update. So if you're an iPhone user, there was a, a critical security vulnerability that was announced. The update was released last week. Um, if you don't have automatic updates on your phone, uh, you want to go ahead and you want to update that. I know for some folks it's challenging and could um, create challenges if you use um, uh, side-loaded apps, so apps that are outside of the app store. I know for some organizations, they have a different process. But this, again, is a known vulnerability. So right now, there are people attacking that vulnerability and basically uh, they're opportunistic in, in some senses, but it, it leads me to just continuously remind folks that do the update. That I know that sometimes it can be cumbersome and a, a challenge, but it definitely is something you want to do. Uh, currently in the cybersecurity uh, world, the real, there are really two main ways that bad actors get into systems. One is through a phishing campaign, uh, whether that phishing leads to malware or uh, just a uh, or a ransomware, as we all know, phishing is the, those emails or those attempts that you get to replicate what looks to be legitimate and getting someone to actually take a human action um, and, and click on a link, enter credentials. That's one of the biggest ways. And the second 
really the second biggest way is through unpatched vulnerabilities. So while neither one of these are, are slam dunk simple things to do, the patching is something that doesn't require a lot of interaction. So I think it's, it's, it's very, very important to, to talk through that. Um, we continue to see kind of global nation state attacks. I, I think uh, we talked about it last week, so I'm not going to go into it in too much depth because there's not a lot of information. Interestingly enough, which is a very odd occurrence, there was a, a fairly well-known European um, or thought to be a European hacking group where one of uh, the folks went out and did an interview. Uh, it was a several hour interview actually um, and really highlighted some of the things that we talk about on the, the LPRC podcast and the LPRC highlighted the fact that these groups are sharing information constantly, doing research. And there were three kind of things that, that I took away from this very long interview um, that were really interesting. One is the amount of research um, that these groups are doing and what uh, the name of the group is Revel. The, the, what, what they were doing is they were actually um, spending time looking at cyber and security insurance companies' websites to see who their customers were and targeting them because they thought in a ransomware environment that they would get larger payouts. And they claim that they actually tested this theory and for bigger companies that have cyber insurance that they get paid quicker and more payouts. So they were doing the research um, and actually, you know, kind of taking a really, I don't want to say scientific, but it is a scientific, but going through and really a methodical approach more of we're going to research these companies and spend an, a lot of time trying to identify targets where we'll get paid. The other thing that, that was said, the, the second thing that was said that was was really interesting is that um, certain certain uh, governments, they were not going to attack because of, uh, and he didn't say this outright, but you can kind of read between the lines, that they knew that the action would be significant. So kind of along the lines of, yeah, the U.S. might arrest you and send you to jail, but they got to find us and they got to come overseas and we're in a non-extradity com company country. But yeah, we're not going to hack Russia because they're going to kill our family type of thing. And that's literally what they said. So taking the the kind of the approach of the see it, get it, fear it is what I thought about is they understand the risk of attacking certain people or certain countries. So they're very focused on places where there's less risks. And then the last thing, which kind of leads back to the LPRC thing is um, there, you know, the, the open exchange of information. So, um, you know, one of the, the comments made was that we don't, they, they don't intermingle with other groups in the sense of sharing information um, that you would think that would work against them, but they do often share information on countermeasures that government officials use. And one of the things that came up was, you know, the FBI seizing uh, sites and, and arrests that are made from the FBI. And, you know, they were talking about how to avoid arrests and what to do if you're raided. So very, very interesting interview. And really, I, I say, we say this all the time, it kind of reminded me of the LPRC offender interviews. But more importantly, it just, uh, you know, reinforces the fact that, you know, talking about things um, is so important and sharing information. And then lastly, I'll, I'll leave this again, a lot of cybersecurity stuff today, and um, I have two more topics. One is uh, we talked about the Verdaka breach, which was the camera breach that did affect some retailers and affected um, you know, over 150 companies. There was an arrest made. Um, it, uh, the arrest was and a seizure made. Uh, the, this uh, person has not been extradited into the US yet, but 
Um, one of the actors in the Redaka Reach, uh, they were pretty vocal about it. They went to Twitter, they went out to the dark web, they talked about it. So the U.S. attorney has filed um, several charges, um, pretty much uh, every, every computer crime charge I've ever seen, including wire fraud. So that ar arrest was made. Um, and I, I expect an extra be And basically looking at it, the, the person um, who is probably one of many in the group. Uh, the, the name of the group is called the Aristocats. It's a hacking group that is not necessarily an organized group as much as a, a group of individuals uh, throughout the globe that are hackers, but they are organized in, in the methodology that they communicate and they have some group meetings. Uh, this arrest just kind of shows the, the, fa the fact that when these breaches happen, that the U.S. government takes them very seriously uh, and goes after it. And then I'll end up uh, kind of with the Chavez trial in Minneapolis and what we're hearing. There is a tremendous amount of media attention, which in some cases, based on what I'm seeing in some of the groups, is fueling um, kind of potential civil disruption. Um, I'm, what I would say is in uh, the, the, the Minnesota markets that I, I'm watching, there is a lot of um, conversation about protests. But I, I will, based on what I'm reading and seeing, uh, certainly the organizers are talking about nonviolence and signage and really being respectful to it. So I think a lot of that, and this is definitely my opinion, has to do with the media attention because um, most of the media attention is uh, in, in reflection of thing, you know, um, the chief of police saying what, what occurred shouldn't have occurred people talking about that, um, you know, that most of the testimony that the, the, that the media is leaking um, is, you know, not inciting folks, more showing that people are compassionate and running through. There was a, a very interesting post um, just yesterday related to, uh, again, if, the, if there was not action, strong action taken on the other officers, that you know there would be you know a significant disruption throughout the U.S. I think that that the thing about that post that was interesting is it had a lot of folks on it. It was a Telegram post, um, but it really was just people. What I would say venting on Telegram. They weren't really talking about organizing. They were talking about the action that would occur if something didn't occur. So we'll continue to look at that. Uh, we'll continue to watch that through the Fusion Net. Uh, as well as some of the unfortunate mass shooting and active shooters. Actually, um, I spoke to um, a, a, you know, one of my law enforcement sources uh, last week uh, around mass shootings, and he's, uh, you know, he, you know, he basically talked about the media attention and some of the things that were occurring and what law enforcement was seeing. And to Reed's point um, earlier, what his comment was is that you know the counter, you know, putting a police officer, putting someone with a gun doesn't uh, necessarily solve this issue and talked really about the, the importance of information sharing and uh, mental health issues and really early, early indicators um, on the internet of things that we're looking for, as well as, um, you know, the unfortunate event in the Capitol uh, with the ramming and the, the you know, of, of two Capitol police officers. So we, we, we talked a little bit about that as well. So, Stay tuned for more, um, and we'll continue to keep bringing things to you. Over to you, Reed. All right. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you, Tony. Um, so that's it from the team here, and uh, we wish everybody a safe, uh, active, productive week ahead. And please uh, let us know your questions, comments, and your suggestions uh, at uh, operations at lpresearch.com.
lpr.org. Um, and please, if you're not a member, consider becoming a member of the LPRC Research and Results Community. So signing off from Gainesville, uh, this is Reed Hayes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.